the topic of today's sermon is something controversial. The topic is divisive and inflammatory and even political. It separates people, it makes people argue, it makes people mad. And the topic is kindness. You say, how can kindness spark controversy? Who knows, but that's what it does. I think part of the problem is that kindness, it isn't well understood. We're, we're tempted to think that kindness just sort of means live and let live. Don't, people tell, don't, don't tell people things they don't want to hear as long as they're not hurting anyone. You know, don't make any waves. Don't ruffle any feathers. Don't confront anything. Uh, it's likely, in that case, that we're just being kind to ourselves, in a sense, not to others, by avoiding unpleasant uh, confrontations and conversations that we'd rather not go through. But then we're also tempted to maybe define kindness away entirely. We think uh, true kindness is speaking the truth. Uh, it's telling it like it is, even when others don't want to hear it. And there's a kernel of truth here, isn't there? Uh, but we can use this reasoning to justify cutting loose with whatever harsh and demeaning things we feel like saying in the name of telling the truth. We can start believing that our attitude and our tone are irrelevant as long as what we're saying is true. In that case, we're, again, we're really being kind to ourselves, freeing ourselves of the burden of actually caring for someone else and simply giving vent to our own thoughts. We don't care about understanding someone else and seeking to communicate in, in a way that might be beneficial to them. We just want to express what we believe and what we think. Uh, whichever temptation you face, you may uh, be tempted to uh, be angry with or look down on those who face the opposite temptation. And to add another layer of confusion, uh, I've heard some teachers say that uh, kindness is somehow a particularly feminine trait. It's something that's for women. And maybe it's one that in some ways can, can approach being a weakness rather than a virtue. The reasoning goes that uh, women are so kind that they might be led away from the truth by their desire to be caring for others. Uh, however, according to scripture, kindness is not directly related to femininity or gullibility. I can tell you that my wife is way more kind than I am and, and also less gullible. Um, you know, uh, might not be saying much to, to say that she's kinder than I am, but you know, there we are. Uh, but in the New Testament, we read that kindness is part of the fruit of the spirit that we are all called to bear. Uh, that ought to mark all believers. But more fundamentally than that, kindness is an attribute of God himself. In fact, in the Old Testament, God places a particular emphasis on kindness as a part of his character. I think I have a slide here, Exodus 34, 6. God is speaking uh, to Moses on Mount Sinai, proclaiming his name, is what the text says in the verse before. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Uh, these words are repeated uh, many times in the Old Testament, uh, several places in the Psalms. And there's a lot we could say about the, the words that are used here, but the key word that I want to focus on is the one that's translated by that underlined phrase there, steadfast love. Uh, the Hebrew word for this is chesed. Uh, if you're taking notes, you can spell it H-E-S-E-D. 
Uh, if you want, you can put a little dot under the H, and that signifies that that H makes the <laughs> sound uh, of the Hebrew letter chet. <laughs> if you are in the first three rows, uh, you may get wet. It's a good thing we are we're practicing social distancing. Maybe we should be required to wear masks when we speak Hebrew. Our English Bibles sometimes translate, I'll just say hesed, uh, as kindness or loving kindness or steadfast love or mercy. Just about every Bible translation uh, uses a different way to to translate it. It, It's difficult to translate because it involves a few different concepts, which is why uh, we have the word loving kindness. Miles Coverdale in 1535 was one Bible translator who Uh, just squished together love and kindness to make a a new word. But based on the way hesed is used in scripture, it it seems to include concepts of love and loyalty and mercy. Uh, It's like mercy or or maybe even approaching grace uh, because it's usually something that we'll say a strong person, especially God, shows to someone who is weak or helpless. And it's not really deserved or earned or given in hope of anything in return. It's given simply because the one who gives is kind, is gracious. It's like loyalty because it includes faithful commitment. It's especially related to the covenant God made with Israel. But it's deeper than simply promise keeping. Hesed is not just God keeping his covenant, but God made the covenant to begin with because of his love or mercy or kindness. You know, think of a marriage. You make certain vows uh, that spell out how you will love each other, yet love isn't merely vow keeping. Love is the reason you made those vows to begin with. Well, the story of Ruth and Boaz may be thought of as a love story, but I think it's deeper than that. I think it's a hesed story. It's not a typical uh, romantic love story the way we think of them today. He's old enough uh, to be her dad, apparently. Uh, He's doing this in part to provide heirs for his dead relatives. She uh, proposes to him in a way that is sure to raise some some eyebrows. Uh, The wedding ceremony consists of someone handing him a sandal. Uh, These are things that you wouldn't find on the Hallmark Channel. It's not really helpful as a a manual for a a single Christian woman to find her Boaz. Uh, It's so much more than that, though. It's a revelation of the kindness, the the hesed of our great Redeemer. The main story isn't how Ruth and Boaz find love, but how God shows his loving kindness to Naomi through Ruth and Boaz. Now, I want to... Before we get to the the text today, I want to give you some reminders. It's been a while since uh, Mike preached on chapter 1. So if you're not familiar with the story, uh, Naomi, along with her husband and their two sons, moved from Israel to Moab, uh, which is a foreign country. They moved because there was a famine in Israel, and so they were trying to find food while they were there. uh, Their two sons married two Moabite women. And then both sons, as well as Naomi's husband, died. And so Naomi, heartbroken, returns to Israel. And what's unexpected is that one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, goes back with her to Israel. It's unexpected. Ruth could have presumably 
gone back to her family in Moab and started over with a new husband, but she clings to Naomi, goes with her, famous passage, uh, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. But Naomi, at the end of chapter 1, is just desolate. She says this, I don't have it on screen, but she says, do not call me Naomi, Naomi means sweet or my sweet. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Naomi is not happy. And can you blame her? I mean, I can blame her. I'm a pastor. It's what we do. I mean, it's just easy and fun to blast Naomi for her words here. Uh, God has brought you back empty. What about Ruth? He brought you back with Ruth. And, and shouldn't you find joy in God despite your circumstances? You know, I could really let her have it. And it'd be fun for me to do it. But in the providence of God, I wasn't around back then. Uh, by the end of chapter 2, though, Naomi will find hope and some healing. Her attitude will start to turn around. And it won't come through someone like me, uh, jumping all over her words and correcting her for her attitude and bitterness. It will come through God revealing his kindness to her through ordinary and yet extraordinary human beings. So let's look at the text. It's Ruth chapter 2, which you'll find, I think, on page 222 in the the Pew Bible, if if you uh, can find one near you. Starting in verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Elimelech was, was her husband's name. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. They answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. 
Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread. Dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law whom she had worked, with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness, that's the word chesed, by the way, has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young men, lest in another field you should be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So I want to look at uh, three different uh, people, I guess, persons who show kindness. I want to look at the kindness of Ruth, the kindness of Boaz, and the kindness of God. That's our outline, um, if that's helpful to you. First, Ruth's kindness. Now, Ruth at this point has already shown some kindness to Naomi in chapter 1 simply by staying with her when Naomi had no one else. And here in chapter 2, her kindness gets to work, and it is hard work. Ruth goes out to work in the fields to gather food for the two of them, to provide. For some background, The law of Moses required Israelites to provide for the poor and for foreigners in this way. I think I've got a slide here for us. Uh, I'm going to read it off here, though, because that's really small. Uh, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Uh, This kind of command is repeated again. Uh, That's Leviticus 19. It's repeated in Leviticus 23, also Deuteronomy 24. So in ancient Israel, crops that grow in the edges of the field... Uh, by God's reckoning, don't belong to the farmer, but to the the poor, to the needy. And also farmers were not permitted to go over their field a second time to pick up whatever they missed in in the first go-around of the harvest. That's what's referred to as the gleanings, what's left over, what maybe fell out of the, the sheaves as they were gathering things in. So Ruth decides to go and avail herself of this gift of God. 
And it's important to note that receiving this benevolence is still going to take work. Uh, the gleaning system doesn't ignore the materially poor or blame them for their need, but it does help maintain dignity uh, by providing work for those who are able to work. And again, this would have been hard work for Ruth. Uh, the way harvesting worked, the young men would go through and cut the stalks of grain with a, a scythe and leave those stalks in piles. And then the women would go through and, and tie those uh, stacks into bundles we call sheaves to be carried off later. Now, given human nature and gleaning laws, it's not hard to imagine that workers would have been pressured into doing this work very efficiently. Uh, there's probably not much left behind. They certainly wouldn't leave the best behind. It would have taken a lot of time for someone to go through and pick out what meager scraps would remain. It would have been a subsistence-level existence, meaning just hours and hours in the hot sun, picking through the dirt for a little bit of, of barley, day in and day out. You, you might consider yourself blessed to have enough for that day to make it through the day, let, enough, let alone enough to, to store up for the next harvest. And this is the life that Ruth expects to live in Israel. This is what her kindness to Naomi looks like. We can't say for sure what her life would have looked like if she stayed in Moab, but surely it would have been better than this. But this is what her kindness to Naomi looks like. By choosing to be with Naomi, she chose to be with her in poverty. She accepts that condition and the hardships that come with it. Boaz recognizes this kindness, and his words are striking here. You know, after he sees her working in the field, shows her amazing kindness, and she asks, why? And the answer, as we read, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, how you left your father and mother, your native land, came to a people you did not know before, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, Boaz doesn't use the word hesed here, but the concept is there. He does use the word hesed for Ruth's actions uh, later in chapter 3 and verse 10. What's interesting to me, you know, Boaz... Verse 1 calls him a worthy man. That, that's a phrase that means he's an upstanding, well-respected, well-to-do member of the community. In chapter 4, we'll see that Boaz has the ability to call for a meeting of the, the town elders. He's relatively high on the social ladder of Bethlehem, but he's amazed by the kindness of this poor foreign widow. We wouldn't expect the wealthy man to, to notice the poor folk gleaning in his field, except maybe as a nuisance. But Boaz not only sees her, but he sees her as someone who's displayed kindness, worthy of his attention, but also worthy of the attention and even reward of the God of Israel himself. This is striking because if you think about it, Ruth Ruth had nothing to give Naomi. She had no money, no connections, no social standing. She walked into a land where, in a sense, she had even less than the widow she was going to be with. But she showed loyal and loving kindness, worthy of Boaz's high praise, worthy of the delight of the God of Israel. 
She reminds me of another widow later on whom Jesus praised, a widow who uh, only had two pennies to give but gave all she had. That's, that's Ruth. She has nothing to give but herself, her, her presence and then her hard work to provide. And that's what she gave. And what a rich and lavish gift that was. So before we move on from her kindness to the kindness of Boaz, I think there's an important application, and that's that we can all show kindness that pleases God. You may not see yourself as having much to offer anyone else. You may think, you know, I'm not the smartest person in the room. I can't teach others. I'm not the wisest. I, I can't counsel anyone or lead. I'm not the richest. I don't have much to contribute to help balance the budget. I'm not the most outgoing. I'm, I'm just too awkward to get to know anyone. I'm, I'm too young and too experienced. I'm too old and too tired. Or I'm in the middle of life and too busy. God can show his kindness through every person in the room today. You are made in his image, and even if you genuinely have nothing to offer but your presence with us, that is a gift that is worthy of our celebration. Like, yes, you're a sinner, and so am I, and we're not capable of all the things that we would like to be able to do. I can identify with that, but you're still made in the image of God. All believers are given gifts to help build up and encourage one another. More than that, you are gifts. In recent times, we've seen extremely gifted teachers and church leaders fail, one after another, it seems. And we've wrestled with all he did for the kingdom versus all he did to those whose lives he destroyed. But I'm convinced that if anyone in this room will put on genuine Christ-like character, you will do more for the kingdom simply by being faithful where you are than any predatory charlatan could ever do with a mountain of books and speaking gigs. And part of that character is kindness. On the flip side of that, do we, like Boaz, see those in need as those who are capable of giving? Do we view people as burdens, or problems to be dealt with, mere charity cases, uh, do we look at some people and see only the, the poverty, the disability, the, the mental illness, the youth, or the old age? Uh, see only what they demand and need from us? Uh, do we ever think that there might be something uh, God might show us through them? The Bible says that the church, like a body, grows through the work of each individual part. God could use Ruth. God could use any one of us. Now let's look at Boaz's kindness. First, it's worth noting that Boaz takes steps to protect Ruth. Ruth is taking on great risk. We know from this very passage that women did work in the fields, but they were in a group and they were protected. Ruth is alone. There's no one to protect her. At the very least, any gleaner is open to verbal abuse from farmers and workers who see them as a nuisance. Uh, but there's a, a darker possibility, and that's why Boaz tells her to, to stay in, in, in this field, and, and Naomi counsels her to do the same. Uh, verse 9, Boaz says, have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Essentially telling Ruth, uh, don't fear the reapers. 
He commands his servants not to insult her or abuse her in any way. Uh, when he says, I've commanded them not to touch you, he doesn't have in mind, you know, kids fighting on a long car trip. I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you kind of thing. The word touch can simply mean touch. Uh, it can also mean strike or hit, and it can be a euphemism for a sexual assault as well. Imagine that, though, a wealthy, powerful, important man gives thought to what it must be like to be a poor, foreign, helpless widow, and then uses his influence, his authority, to make sure she is protected. It's an example for us today of of, of how uh, whatever power we're given is meant to be used, an example of how God uses his power to care for the weak. Next, notice that Boaz goes above and beyond the requirements of the law, even, to provide for Ruth. Uh, He's only required to allow her to pick up what his farmhands leave behind. But he's so impressed by her kindness that he's moved to show her great kindness as well. I guess I'm kind of jumping around in the text here, but there's this business of Ruth gleaning among the sheaves that you find in verse 7 and verse 15. It, It seems unusual. Uh, Most likely, the poor gleaners uh, would be required to wait for the sheaves to be removed from the field uh, and then go out and and gather what's left. Uh, Gleaning among the sheaves seems to be the earliest one could possibly glean without, you know, clearly taking something that maybe should be in the pile, just stealing the harvest. Uh, In verse 7, the head reaper tells Boaz that Ruth asked to do this, and read some different commentaries. Some are convinced that, yeah, she did ask. Uh, Others are convinced that he's just accusing her of being extra bold. Either way, it speaks to Ruth's boldness because either she asked to do this or she opened herself up to the accusation of, of, of this kind of boldness. And either way, the surprising thing is that Boaz invites her to do it. And not only that, down in verse 16, he even told the reapers to pull some grain out of the sheaves for her on purpose. Presumably, there would have been fear that some poor and desperate worker gleaning among the sheaves would be tempted to to snag some stuff uh, that really should be in the stack. Like, oops, that stack, uh, that that stalk fell out. Uh, Boaz says, we're going to do that for her. And not only that, he tells her in verse 8 to stay in his field, glean right behind the young women, as they tie the sheaves into bundles, it's the earliest she could possibly glean. It makes sure she gets as much as possible. Again, it keeps her safe. Then the end result of all this generosity is that Ruth comes away with an ephah of barley. Um, unit of measure we don't use, but uh, on the low end, it's probably at least 30 pounds of grain. And for a hired worker, that would be about two weeks' wages, with which Ruth is able to gather in one day. It speaks to both her diligence and Boaz's kindness. But it's more than that. Uh, when Boaz says in verse 8, keep close to my young, woman, young women, that word keep close, it's the same word used in chapter 1, where it says Ruth clung to Naomi. Uh, It's the same word used in Genesis when it says a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. It's it's a strong expression of of unity, of solidarity. So Boaz comes close to making Ruth one of his hired workers, part of his people. In fact, in verse 9, he gives her access to the worker's water supply. He said, drink whatever the young men draw. A little surprising since usually in scripture we see women drawing water for men. But In any case, he's essentially, we can think of it, showing her the water cooler. 
Uh, in verse 14, he shows her the lunchroom, come here and eat, allows her to share in the staff meal. It's the kind of access you give to a new hire. But wait, there's more. If I can get, yeah. There's, there's some background here. In Deuteronomy 23, the law says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way when you came out from Egypt. Now, the, the passage doesn't forbid Moabites from entering the nation of Israel. Uh, it's the assembly of the Lord is a religious assembly. Uh, but in any case, the, the reason for the prohibition is that when Israel was on their way to the promised land, the Moabites didn't offer any aid in the way of bread and water. That's an unresolved grievance between Moab and Israel. Isn't it interesting then that the author of Ruth carefully records that Boaz gave Ruth, the Moabite, both bread and water? It's, it's the last thing we might expect a Moabite to receive from an Israelite. But Boaz, in his kindness, provides exactly that. Here's another text that gives us some background. Numbers 25 says that while Israel was staying in the Acacia Grove, the people began to prostitute themselves with the women of Moab. The women invited them to the sacrifices for their gods, and the people ate and bowed and worshipped to their god, their gods. Uh, this is what Moabite women were particularly known for, sexual temptation that leads to idolatry. So we might have expected a man like Boaz to see a Moabite woman in his field as a danger to his young men. She's going to tempt them to, to stumble into sin. But he rightly sees the danger to Ruth and acts to protect her. Again, he gives the exact opposite of how I might expect a Moabite to be treated in Israel. And of course, we don't think Ruth deserves uh, any harsh treatment because she's a Moabite. We're not ancient Israelites either. We have a more individualistic bias. But these, again, are unresolved grievances between Israel and Moab. And like it or not, uh, Boaz is an Israelite, Ruth is a Moabite. It's part of the background of their story. It, it affects them, whether they were there at the time or not. And this tells us something about kindness, about chesed. It not only ignores, deserves, it's willing to run deliberately contrary to deserve we begin to see how kindness overlaps with grace, unmerited, undeserved favor. It's motivated not by what the recipient ought to get in our eyes, but what the recipient needs. The kind, and it's motivated by the kind nature of the one who shows kindness. As Shakespeare famously wrote, the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. Do we show kindness and mercy like that? And I'm not saying that punishment and consequences are never in order in the earthly sphere. Uh, usually earthly justice is required because of kindness. Uh, for example, uh, if at the Nuremberg trials uh, they decided to let Nazi war criminals just completely off the hook, that would not have been merciful. It would have been brutally unkind to the Holocaust survivors who had suffered atrocities, saw loved ones systematically murdered, would say to them, what, you're suffered, what you suffered is not a big deal. 
course, sometimes consequences are a kindness to the one who has sinned uh, to bring about uh, repentance and restoration. Allowing someone to continue an unrepentant sin is complicity, not kindness. But even in those situations, notice what we're doing. We're, we're looking to the needs of someone else. Maybe it's a situation where we prioritize the needs of a victim over a perpetrator or a, a situation where we recognize that someone, what someone needs is consequences to their actions. Or maybe we realize what somebody needs is a cup of cold water in Jesus' name or a listening ear or a comforting presence or help making ends meet. An interesting question to ask ourselves as individuals and as a church is this. Who do we find it easy to show kindness to? Who do we have a hard time showing kindness to? Uh, who do we think deserves it? Who do we feel doesn't deserve it? You know, I mentioned earlier how Naomi's whole attitude toward God turns around by the end of this chapter. She had said in chapter 1 at the end, God dealt bitter with, bitterly with me. Now, she says, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness, whose hesed, has not forsaken the living or the dead. It's a little bit unclear in that verse when it says, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Is, is that the Lord's kindness or is it Boaz's kindness? I think the answer is yes. It's God showing his kindness through Boaz. But think about the change in her attitude and, and what turned it around. Now, we don't read of anyone counseling her, correcting her. Uh, sh someone showed kindness to her. Someone stuck with her when no one else could and at great personal risk and cost helped her. You know, I believe that the gospel, which is a message, is the power of God for salvation it doesn't follow from that that every problem we face can be solved by throwing words at it. The word of God is sufficient. That doesn't mean that teaching is sufficient to address every situation. I know that because the word of God says so. Uh, we're told to bear one another's burdens, to weep with those who weep, to encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, contribute to the needs of the saints, to show hospitality, to follow Christ's example in serving one another. Why else would God put us together in a church? You know, teaching and preaching the word is important. I'm literally, literally up here doing that right now. Uh, but we put Christ first in our word ministry. We also put Christ first in our relationships with each other. Uh, I think of uh, Tiana's testimony shared just a, a while ago. Uh, how... Yes, hearing talks is, is part of her coming to faith, but also receiving love and kindness uh, from Christians was also a, a part of what drew her to God. God uses that too. What I'm saying is this, that God often helps us to understand and receive his kindness by showing it to us through the kindness of one another. And that leads, I think, to the final point and the most important one. As amazing as Ruth and Boaz are, as, as models for kindness, that's not the main point of the passage. The main point is God's kindness. Now, there are no miracles in the book of Ruth. There are no prophets who speak directly from God. God doesn't grant any of these characters supernatural strength or impossible military victories like we see in the book of Judges, which happened at the same time. 
but God is at work in the ordinary. Verse 3 says that Ruth happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. The Hebrew is oddly redundant, uh, something like her chance chanced upon the field belonging to Boaz. The meaning is that Ruth didn't plan this. She didn't know whose field it was or likely even who Boaz was at this point. And the narrator kind of hammers that home to make us think there's more going on. It's as if he's saying there was this guy who could save Ruth and Naomi and Ruth just happened to come to his field. It was totally random and not planned at all, I swear. The point is that God is at work here. This didn't happen by human planning or intention, but it was part of God's plan. Digging a little deeper, you know, when when Boaz praised Ruth's kindness, he points out how she came to take refuge under the wings of the Lord, the God of Israel. On the surface, we see in chapter 1, we saw Ruth showing kindness to Naomi, but something else was going on under the surface, wasn't it? Ruth herself was coming to take refuge in the kindness of God. She was showing kindness to one another, even as she was coming to see and receive the kindness of God. And that's the way it works. Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. It starts with the loving kindness of God. That's the root. The kindness we show to others, that's that's the fruit. So the most important application we can draw from this is receive the kindness of God. Take shelter under his wings. Like Ruth, we were all born idolaters, separated from God and the people of God and worshiping false gods of our own making. We don't deserve the kindness of God, but kindness is not about deserve. He offered it to us freely anyway because he is kind, and he offered it at great cost. Like Ruth, Christ entered into our desperate situation. He didn't have to do that. He was rich beyond all splendor. He entered into our poverty. Our God, heaven cannot hold him, but he was born a tiny infant, laid in a lowly manger. He labored and toiled in obscurity till his 30s, suffering under the futility of work, under the curse. He gave up the throne of heaven to become homeless, no place to lay his head. He had nothing in this world, though the whole world belonged to him, but he gave all he had himself, his life. He took on our poverty, our guilt, our shame on himself. He endured the wrath of God in our place And he bled and died on the cross for our sins. You and I were in a desperate situation of our own sinful making. Christ didn't need to have anything to do with it other than to punish us. But he entered into it and took on himself the consequences for our sin. And as Christ did that, if he loved us that much, he will surely reach into whatever desperate situation you may be facing today. Maybe not in the time 
or the way you might imagine, but he's proven on the cross that he loves you and that he will care for you. See what a lavish gift of loving kindness God has given us in Christ and receive his kindness. Take refuge under his wings. Trust him for he is good and he is gracious. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your loving kindness, for your mercy and grace which you poured out upon us in the blood of Christ. We thank you that though we though we are sinners, though we are prone to rebellion against you, to seeking our, our own agendas, uh, we, so many ways can be unlike you. We can be um, vindictive, uh, we can look down on others, um, yet you are gracious and merciful. We, we thank you for the great cost and great love that you were willing to give. And we ask that our hearts would grow ever amazed at what you have done for us. And we ask that we, as we come to you, receiving your kindness, that we would be transformed by it. You would open our hearts. You know, sometimes it is difficult for us even to receive your kindness because we feel we aren't worthy of it and we don't deserve it. But you give it freely and it is glorifying to you and honoring to you for us to take refuge. Help us to do that and then transform us that we might show that same love, that same kindness, that same mercy to those around us so that all might come to see the great and bountiful, steadfast love of our God so that you might be praised and glorified. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.